Well, good morning to you, the table. It's uh, a joy for my wife and I to be with you this morning singing to the Lord and uh, to be able to share from the Word with you. Um, it's been a great summer for my wife and I to be here. And funny enough, this uh, morning, Brad and I were talking about how close geographically he and I have been, and we didn't connect at all throughout the summer. And uh, I mean, he's like blocks away from where my wife and I have been staying, and uh, I thought, what? But uh, thankful for the opportunity anyway to be here, and, um, and yeah, be able to explore uh, opportunities in the future, Lord willing, uh, among the Hispanic community, which I've discovered recently there's, the area is ripe for a church that brings good teaching and brings the grace of God to needy people. And so uh, my wife and I definitely want your prayers, and uh, we hope that this is not the last time that we get to share with you. So in the Psalms, we read about many times of God being a refuge, a fortress. And oftentimes that can be a little abstract. What does it mean for God to be our fortress, to be a refuge? And the Bible, as uh, Brad was saying, does not shrink away from hard situations, hard situations in life that require God to be that, a refuge, a strength. And in our passage this morning, as the superscription read, David is running from his son of all people. He is fleeing his son who is persecuting him. And essentially what David is experiencing is a betrayal by his son. Now, stories of betrayal capture our imaginations many times. Indeed, you only have to look at podcasts and see the top podcasts are related to true crime podcasts. And oftentimes, those podcasts are stories of betrayal. Friends betray one another, spouses betraying one another, ending in murder. Or sometimes the betrayal just elicits vengeance on behalf of the victim. But we'll discover in this passage how David then responds and how he engages the Lord. Now again, stories of betrayal capture our imagination. We know the story and the tragedy of Julius Caesar and being betrayed by the Senate and one of his best friends. And if I recall the movie correctly, you'll recall with me that Julius Caesar is in the Senate being assassinated by them. And finally, that climactic moment when Brutus approaches and also <laughs> betrays uh, Julius Caesar. And that moment where he looks at his friend and he says, you too, Brutus? A too, Bruta? Where every Christmas season we're reminded of Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was a man who wanted to remain in power. And he gripped power as hard as he could. So much so that if he just caught a whiff of betrayal, he would kill even his relatives, which he did. Those within his own family, close to his family, who he would suspect of betrayal, he would just rid himself of them. We have the story of the Magi coming to Herod the Great, asking for the king of the Jews that was just born. And he tells the Magi, well, once you find him, come back, bring me news so that I may worship him. Now we know, because we know the story, that he was not really intending to worship Jesus, but he was intending to kill Jesus. 
So much so that he decreed that all the children under the age of two should be killed because he was afraid of sedition, of betrayal. And so ancient kings like David were always the target of betrayal. And our psalm today emerged from that experience. But it's David's response to the betrayal that sets him apart. And in similar situation, it should set us apart as we engage God. Now, we've all been wronged in some way. And if you've ever held a grudge, I mean, even if you've grown like me, if you've been raised in the church, at one point or another in your life, you've been wronged by the church. There's been friction, tension. Many of us maybe have walked away from the church because we just see the church riddled with with problems. But I believe our psalm this morning shows us a way forward in freedom and how we can move on with grace. And so this psalm gives us a way forward from our grudges, from people who have wronged us. We can find freedom to move forward. And so consider with me this psalm under four headings. An invitation to be honest with God, an invitation to depend on God's protection, an invitation to experience God's peace, and lastly, an invitation to entrust your enemies to a saving God. So first, an invitation to be honest with God. In 2013, there was a movie that was released called Lone Survivor. And this movie captures the story of a team of Navy SEALs who were deployed to gather information and to apprehend a Taliban leader. Now, as they were gathering intelligence, trying to find the, uh, leaders, the Taliban leader's position, they were discovered by villagers. Now, at that point, the SEAL team did not know if these villagers were friendlies. Maybe they were in league with a Taliban leader, but they didn't know that. So they apprehended the villagers, questioned them, had them in custody, and they were convinced that, well, they're not a threat to us. They released the villagers. Sadly, the villagers were in league with the Taliban leader, bring news to the Taliban leader of the team, the Navy SEAL team, and a fight ensues. Now, in this situation, the stakes were high because you have a small team of Navy SEALs having to confront and having to fight a large group of villagers who were very well armed. So much so that as a title of the story called Lone Survivor, there's one SEAL team member that remains and he had to fend off a whole team of, of enemy, enemy fighters until air support came. But the stakes were very, very high. And they were betrayed by these people, these men whom they had in their custody. So likewise, in David's situation, the stakes were high. His kingdom, his throne was being threatened. But how did David respond? Well, he was honest with the Lord about his situation. Our passage opens with David on the run. And while he's on the run, we get to hear his cry, his plea, his complaint to the Lord concerning the crushing fact of the multiplication, as he says in these first two passages, of his foes, his enemies. And David says in verse 1, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. So 
we can feel the honesty in David's prayer. You see, Absalom's conspiracy was executed in a few ways. First, Absalom took with him 50 men. And then he took, upon, he took it upon himself to undermine his father's rule throughout his kingdom. And this is the way that Absalom did it. He went throughout the kingdom and began to, to settle matters between, settle disputes between the people. Now, in ancient times, the king was one who was also a judge. And so he would settle matters among the citizens of his kingdom. Now, this is a little foreign to us as Americans because we're used to and we're taught about a system of government that's balanced between three branches, and they each keep each other in check. So there's no concentrated power. But in this case, Absalom begins to curry favor with the people by settling disputes. So much so that he tells the people, you know, if only there was someone who would settle disputes, then he would be the right king for you. And so he begins, the Second uh, Samuel 15 tells us, he begins to earn the hearts of the people by settling these disputes and earning their hearts. Then we also learn that Absalom begins to undermine his, his father's own guard, his own retinue. In his own father's household, he begins to sow seeds of dissension. And then he takes with, with him 200 men. So to my count, at this point, he's carrying, he's, he has men after him, following him, about 250 men. So you, you can see where David can say, my enemies, my foes are multiplying. Moreover, Absalom takes with him one of his most wise counselors. He takes with him Ahithophel. The Bible tells us that Ahithophel, whoever came to Ahithophel for, for advice, it was like seeking counsel from God's word itself. So we can sense David's worry and fear, and he's feeling very distraught. And so he cries to the Lord that his enemies are many, as he is being betrayed by his son, a son that he loves. So we begin to see how the stakes are really high for David. And yet his enemies up the ante, because in verse 2, this is what they say. David says, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Again, he's, David is being betrayed, and his enemies are just ratcheting up the intensity. So much so that they've been saying, well, God is not for David. There's no salvation for David in God. The only person, the only being David has left. Let me ask you, how do you deal with being betrayed or being wronged. This psalm invites us to be honest with God. I mean, even when we see a counselor, we have to confront the reality that we have to be honest. We have to be open and honest if we want to find a solution. If we want to find reconciliation with those who have wronged us, we have to be open and to be honest and say, this is the problem and this is what's wrong. And so when the stakes are high, our passage invites us to be honest with the Lord. But in contrast to what David's enemies say, what, what does David know? Well, this passage also invites us to depend on God's protection. 
So as uh, Brad said, I'm originally from LA, originally from California. And California is known as earthquake country. And I remember growing up and having earthquake drills. And every, every semester, every school year, we were taught when I was a kid what to do when an earthquake struck. And we were very well trained to immediately just dive underneath our desks. But in 1995, we had what was called the Northridge earthquake. And that earthquake happened in early in the morning. It was like 5 a.m. in the morning when this earthquake struck. And I grew up deathly afraid of earthquakes. And so I remember that morning feeling the earth move, started shaking very violently, and somehow through the fog of sleep, just did a somersault off my bunk bed and ran to my parents' room into my father's arms. And it is there that I was able to feel and sense a sense of protection. So in our passage, we discover that David runs to the protection, to the arms of God, when he is confronted by this threat, the threat of his son's betrayal. David says in verse 3 and 4, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. So David starts recalling with covenantal language who God is for him. David, who was a man who was set apart by God to be in the position of a king, God who made a covenant with David. David is able to recall these promises. First, he says to, to, the, to the Lord that he is a shield and his glory. And this is the same language, if you can recall, boys and girls, you'll remember that when God set aside Abraham and Abraham was desiring a child, he turns to the Lord, and he's, he wants a son. This is a man who's really old, and he wants children. In ancient times, having children was the way that you could pass down your legacy, pass down your riches. And Abraham didn't have that. And it's something that he really deeply wanted. And so God responds, I am your shield and your great reward. It's the same language that David is recalling here to the Lord. Second, in contrast to what David's enemies say about David, David confesses this. He says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. David's enemies say, there's no salvation for him and God. David says, to the contrary, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. God who dwells on Mount Zion is sure to hear David, his servant. And so, when your relationships are strained, when you've been wronged, when it's hard for you in those moments to say, how am I going to make a connection with this person again? To whom do you run? This psalm is calling us to run to the protection of the Lord. Maybe you've just laid in bed and, and you just stare at the ceiling two, three in the morning and wonder, how am I... How am I going to make this relationship make sense? Well, you can turn to the Lord because he can hear you. He hears us. And so when the stakes are high, the psalm invites us to be honest with God. It also invites us to run to God's protection. But next, it's an invitation to experience God's peace. 
And certainly, in relationships, that's what we want the most. So a few years ago, my family and I were able to uh, fly to Guatemala. I'm originally from Guatemala. I was raised in L.A., but I was born in Guatemala, and so we were able to go visit family that I had never met before. And uh, we had to do a layover in Charlotte. And the plane takes off, and after a few minutes, it was about 45 minutes, the plane was just going in circles. It was just flying, and then it would turn, and then turn again, and turn again. And finally, the captain gets on the PA and reports that there was an issue with the landing gear. And they'd been flying in circles to burn fuel so that when they needed to make that emergency landing, there wasn't going to be a catastrophe. And, and so in that moment, of course, you're in midair. You, you have no control of what's going on <laughs> in the flight deck. And now, keep in mind, this is an airplane full of Hispanic people. And sometimes Hispanic people can be very extra. <laughs> and so as soon as everyone hears that there's trouble, those who are Roman Catholic begin to pray the Lord's Prayer. So maybe during Mass, you know, they, may, they probably just like mumble the Lord's Prayer. I mean, here they were wholeheartedly just like really praying the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> there's Pentecostals in the plane. They were speaking in tongues, y'all. It was, it was wild. And I got to admit, you know, at that moment, I'm like, Lord, if this is it, then, you know, I trust you. But in that moment, I noticed that the uh, flight attendants were not worried at all. There was no response for that. I mean, like, are they even alive? I mean, they were just strapped down, you know, just what they had to do. But what did they know that the rest of us did not know? That they had an, a piece about, yeah, you know, this is okay. You know, in the unlikely event, they always tell us, right, this is what you should do, and sure enough. But what kind of peace were they, were they experiencing? What did they know that we didn't know the rest of, of the passengers? Because they were experiencing a peace like Jesus experienced. You'll remember when they get into a boat, with, he gets in a, into a boat with his disciples, and they go across the Sea of Galilee, and a storm breaks out. And the crew of the boat, the disciples, again, these were men who were acquainted with the sea. And they're in a panic. And Jesus is sleeping. He's sleeping. And they have to arouse him. They have to wake him up and say, Rabbi, do you not see that we're about to die? It's as almost as if Jesus was bothered by the fact that they had to wake him up from his nap to calm the sea and to calm the storm. Well, that's the kind of peace that this passage is calling us to. You see, David is able to say in verses 5 and 6, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Remember, David is being pursued by his son. And not only that, there's a team already that Absalom has built around himself to pursue David. And yet David is not freaking out. He is not in fear. And he's able to say, hey, I can sleep. And I can sleep deep. And then he continues, I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. David is not relying on his expertise as a fighter, as a warrior, You'll recall that when he 
was going to confront Goliath. Saul said, hey, you need, a, you need an armor. You need weapons. You need this. You need the other. And David says, you know, I don't need all of that. Because when I was a shepherd and a bear came and took a sheep from the sheepfold, I would rescue the lamb from its jaws. Or if a lion came, I did the same thing. Now, in this passage, he's not saying, well, my expertise as a shepherd or as a warrior. No, he's saying, the Lord sustained me. In fact, you'll recall, too, that he, he had been previously persecuted. He was persecuted by Saul. When Saul realized that this was the anointed of the Lord now, when David was the anointed of the Lord, he persecuted David. He pursued David to kill him. And there's a whole psalm about that too, Psalm 18. And so David is able to, to rest, to sleep like a baby. And he says in his confession, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. The image here is, again, being pursued by, a, by an army and not being, not flinching because of the peace that he is experiencing from God. So again, those moments when we are, when we can't sleep, right? When relationships are strained. I've been wronged by my dad or my mom or an ex-spouse, business partner. And those moments that we're just staring at the ceiling or maybe just scrolling to a, through our phone because we're not experiencing that peace, but we want to be distracted. This psalm is inviting us to engage with the Lord to know that God sustains us and that he is our peace and that he can provide a peace that surpasses all understanding because that's exactly what David is experiencing. He's being pursued, not to be tried, not to be questioned, but to be killed. And he can experience that peace. So we are invited in the same manner to experience that peace. So when the stakes are high, the psalm is an invitation to be honest with God it's also an invitation to run to God's protection. And it's an invitation to experience the peace of God. And then lastly, it's an invitation to entrust those strained relationships, those enemies, to a saving God. Now, this next story might be a little trivial, but I think it can capture how sometimes being wronged can cause us to react in a negative way. So a few years ago, I had a truck that I really loved. I know, that's pretty vain, a truck. And it was a pickup truck that was just, I loved. And then, again, growing up in L.A., I didn't grow up in a nice neighborhood. I mean, where I grew up, we call it the hood. It's riddled with crime. And so once, one time, I wake up to my truck having its tailgate stolen. And in that moment, again, with, with, with the... Uh, Benefit of hindsight, it's just insignificant. But in that moment when I noticed that my truck is missing its tailgate, I was very angry. Very angry at a, someone whom I didn't know, whose name never, I never knew who it was, faceless person. And this person somehow became my enemy. So much so that I thought, you know, whoever it is, I hope something Something bad happens to them. And 
here's an anger that I was experiencing to someone whom I didn't know. And David here is able to turn to the Lord and entrust someone whom he loves, someone whom he knows, someone who has wronged him, who has betrayed him deeply. And so David turns to God and he entrusts, he's effectively entrusting his son to God's hand. He's not taking matters into his own hands. David is not taking matters into his own hands, even while he could as the king of Israel. He could have taken matters into his own hands and tried his son. But no, he turns to the Lord. And, as, and what, what, he, what, what David prays here is, an, I'm going to be American, he prays an imprecatory psalm. <laughs> so he prays an imprecatory prayer. And he turns to God and he says, for you strike my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. The NIV version translates this more like an imperative. He's, he's asking the Lord to strike his enemy on the cheek and to break his teeth. Now, this is a hard passage because David is asking for something bad to happen to his enemies. And this, of course, yes, will trip up many who are skeptics of God and Christianity and Scripture, but we need to take a closer look at what's happening in this passage. Because again, we're, we're separated by millennia and culture from what's going on in this passage. You'll recall that David is an anointed king, and God has made a covenant with David to establish his kingdom. And the king is, in this context, was a representative of the people to God and vice versa. Now, how so? This can be illustrated in a couple of ways. When the king was obedient to God and obeyed God and pleased the Lord in all his ways, then the people experienced blessing. Now, when the king, and we had plenty of those in scripture, who caused the people to worship idols, to, who closed the temple and the tabernacle for worship, then the people experienced curse and trouble. And hence, in the history of Israel, we see that they were taken into exile because they were led by ungodly kings. But here, David, again, he's not taking matters into his own hands, but he's entrusting God. And a God who is a kind God, who is a holy God, a righteous and just God. And that is the God who, he says in the last verse, salvation belongs to the Lord. So it's a fascinating dynamic that's going on here because he's not saying then God, God is my, the one who's going to kill all my enemies, though he could, but he's trusting the righteousness, the justice of God, who can deal in a more holy way, in a more just way with David's enemies. And so David is trusting God with what to do with his enemies, who are also Israel's enemies. And in this, we see David's humanity in his request as he takes what it could be a desire for vengeance to the Lord. David is not taking matters into his own hands, but is trusting God, who is just, who is the creator of heaven and earth, the one who sent David as king over Israel. And if God put him there as king, God will keep him there as king or not. Either way, David trusts the Lord. But this, is, this goes hand in hand 
with what we see in the New Testament. Paul, writing to the Romans, says this in chapter 12. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Because David trusts the Lord, he can exclaim with confidence, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. David places, places his confidence on God, to whom the kingdom of Israel belongs anyway. If we're honest with ourselves, we have felt deep anger toward those who have wronged us. But here, this passage is helping us put away, aside any, any feelings of vengeance, of retribution, of confrontation, and putting them in God's hands and trusting God. And so this passage, is, this chapter is helping us to be honest with God, knowing God's protection, experiencing God's peace, and to be able to entrust our enemies or those who have wronged us to a saving God. But what if you have been the betrayer? What if you have been the Absalom who has risen against the king? I want you to be open to the fact that you and I have caused cosmic sedition against the king. You see, when Adam and Eve took from that forbidden fruit and the fall happened and the fall took effect, we were all born enemies of God. We, in our self-centeredness, have put God aside and said, you know what, I can take it from here. I know what to do with my life. And sin is, as Timothy Keller has said, is putting ourselves in God's position. It's not just transgressing God's law, but by the way we transgress God's law. Even just by violating that first commandment, you shall have no other gods. And we place ourselves as our own gods. And so we betrayed, we betrayed the Lord, the greater David, the son of David. In fact, he himself was betrayed. Jesus, who was betrayed by Judas. You'll recall that he was among those, among the disciples when he said, I, know, I no longer call you servant, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friend. And this friend is the one who betrayed Jesus. And when Jesus prayed to the Father as he anticipated this betrayal, Jesus was not heard. His, his prayer was not answered. For what reason? To bring reconciliation. Reconciliation between his enemies. Reconciliation to you and to me. Paul, again, writing to the Romans, he says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We who were Christ's enemies. And he goes on to tell the Romans, for if while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So Jesus brings love, reconciliation to us. Love and reconciliation so that we can have a right relationship with God the Father. And as we have a right relationship with God the Father, we can have reconciliation and a right relationship with others. So on the cross, Christ defeated our enemies. That as we are united to him, we do not need to fear. And we can face being wrong and betrayal and hurt by trusting God. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for Jesus, our Redeemer. The greater David who had the power, who could command a legion of angels to protect him, but did not, but faced the cross, faced betrayal to bring us love, to bring us reconciliation, that we would be reconciled with a holy and just God, and that we could also experience reconciliation with one another. So I pray that you would store these words in our hearts, your word, by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.